Wherefore, remember that ye, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you, that were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. In 1944, the existentialist John Paul Sartre, living in occupied Paris, produced a play called Hui Clos, No Exit, or oftentimes called In Camera. In this play, Sartre depicts hell as a locked room. The play contains uh, the often misunderstood but groundbreaking existentialist statement that hell is other people. Sartre adequately portrayed the lamentable condition of man without God. That man without God lives in a walled, ceilinged, and a locked room, incapable of escape by his own efforts. And when Sartre was saying that hell is other people, he was saying that the other inhabitants of the room do not add to his life, but intrude upon his existentialist freedom. That the barriers that man puts up to prevent his opinion and identity from being challenged are those barriers which isolate him. In the same time period, C.S. Lewis was writing The Great Divorce, in which he he depicts hell, as uh, this kind of growing darkness where everyone separates to the extent where you can no longer see the lights of the other person's domicile. Over 75 years from Sartre and Lewis, we live in an environment where their ideas seem oddly prophetic, for they appear on our phones and our televisions and our computers, and the irony that we who are the most connected of people find ourselves the most isolated. For hostility surrounds us as any denial of another person's opinion or identity must come with a trigger warning. People call hate the love that is behind wanting people to live fulfilled according to their creation in the image of God. And even the traditional battle lines that we think of in politics, such as left and right, give way to factions within those poles, creating internal hostility. We are trapped in a war that is raging. A war that is raging that man can find no solution to. Man's problem is not a lack of understanding. The traditional solution to this problem, that if we just understood one another, all uh, all of our hostility would be gone. But that is not the solution. That is not the problem. Our problem is at heart 
a lack of peace with God. The only solution to human hostility is spiritual, not intellectual. Paul demonstrates this in his discussion of how Christ has put an end to the hostility, one of the greatest hostilities that is recorded for us in the Bible, the hostility between Jew and Gentile. As he continues to describe the effect of the cross, we see how it destroys barriers. It tears apart the barriers between people. It demolishes the, the, the barrier between God and man, that barrier that begins all barriers. It gives us access to the creator of the universe. That we no longer live in Sartre's enclosed room, we, but in a world without walls, without ceilings, and with a door. With the primary problem in the early church being the battle between Jew and Gentile, Paul first describes the peace that Christ has made for that war. He focuses on the effect of Christ's work, on the enmity and the ordinance that separated these two people groups. Paul describes the effect of Christ's work in physical terms as a metaphor, as you see in verse 14. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. The wall that separated humanity and added to the envy and hatred between men, Christ has broken down. The physical identification of this wall has led to a lot of commentator speculation. Such alternatives include a Gnostic notion of layers of reality, the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, the cordon that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Jews, or the Mosaic law. When considering the, the alternatives, we must remember that this is in the context of Paul addressing the Gentile audience of this letter. We read that in verses 11 and following, you who are once Gentiles in the past, called uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, you have been, who were far from God, have been brought near through the blood of Jesus. And so here, by this wall, he is talking and referring back, I believe, to this barrier between Jew and Gentile. The segues nicely into the next verse as Paul says something shocking to his students about the effect of Christ upon the law. Verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. He has brought peace by abolishing the enmity, the hatred. In order to bring peace, that which separated the Jew and the Gentile must be abolished. But how is this law abolished? Is he referring to the Mosaic law? Remember, Paul said, do we then make the law void? Uh, God forbid, yea, we establish the law. What then is the sense in which this law that Paul says is established in Christ abolished? Remember, to whom he is writing, it is written to the Gentiles. It is likely that Paul doesn't have the kind of uh, categories of the law of Moses that we have in mind. He's saying that that law, that those ordinances which separate a Jew from Gentile, those uh, markers that mark them off as the people of God, have been put to nothing. Now, in Christ, there is a new covenant which makes his people one. 
The church is famous for following in the footsteps of Second Temple Judaism, which loved this kind of bifurcation between Jew and Gentile. We love the, our hypocrisy as we erect barriers to communion with people that are often based on our own preferences. And that this verse is not encouraging you to break down the barriers of the moral law or to uh, say that the moral law is of no effect in this day. Rather, it is suggesting that the moral law in its depiction of sin is the boundaries. And that we in our fellowship often like to create those that are outside the church. What Paul is talking about here in this piece is a piece that is to be found within the community of faith. Remember, in the context, Paul is talking about those who were once barred from communion with the covenant, with the covenant people of God now have access to him. The Jews, who, the Gentiles who were once thought of, of as not his people are now understood as being his people. Those who are far off have been brought near, and the wall that barred their entrance has been taken down. And with that wall has been taken down the enmity and all the ordinances that said who was out and who was in that were a part of the old covenant. And instead of two people of God, Jew and Gentile, now there is one people of God. And yet we like to create multiple peoples of God. One of the facts about the church that often is the most discouraging is that God's people do not gather under one roof. And all of our fellowship oftentimes is limited to the people in this room. And yet the fellowship of God's people is broad. That we ought to have table fellowship with other denominations. Now, I'm not saying that we are all, we're going to compromise on the five points of Calvinism or on covenant or any of the theology that we have. Not at all. But if you look at the, uh, those of you who are members, if you remember the vows you took as members, none of them said anything about the five points of Calvinism or about covenant theology at all. In fact, the fellowship that we have as God's people in this place is based upon these questions. Do you believe that the Bible consisting of the Old and New Testaments is the word of God and its doctrine of salvation to be the only perfect and true doctrine of salvation? Do you believe that the Bible is the word of God and that what it says about God and you and salvation is true? Do you believe in one true and living God in whom eternally are three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that Jesus is God come in the flesh, and that he died and rose again for you? Do you confess that because of your sinfulness you abhor yourself before God, that you repent of your sin and trust in salvation not in yourself alone but in Jesus? Is Jesus your sovereign Lord and Savior, and do you forsake the world and seek to live a godly life? This is the basis of our fellowship, the gospel. The barriers have fallen down. The hatred has fallen down. And we are called to recognize the fellowship that God's people ought to have with one another 
grounded upon the peace that we have with God. See, that is the wall that has fallen, but Paul does not just focus on the walls, the barriers that separated Jew and Gentile falling. He also reflects upon the ceiling that has fallen, our horizontal alienation, the vertical dimension where once we were apart from God, now he has made peace with us. Christ has reconciled us and made a peace with us and made one, made us one. Christ has made peace between God and man in his work on the cross, putting to death the hostility that we see in verse 16, and, hath, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. He begins with this horizontal uh, difference, this horizontal wall that separated Jew and Gentile. And then he goes deeper and he says that horizontal wall was based upon or was a reflection of or came out of our true hostility, our true enmity, which was our enmity with God the Father. I use the ceiling metaphor uh, to describe the barrier between us and God, but Paul uses a personal anthropomorphizing antagonism between a holy God and sinful men, slaying that enmity, killing that hatred, killing that, uh, that judicial sentence that was against us. He killed it in two ways. First, and more importantly, by his death, he satisfied God's hatred of our sin. He took the wrath our sin deserved. We often hear that we ought not speak about God's wrath and reflection of what Jesus has done, but I say, nay, nay, because if we do not reflect upon the wrath of God due to us for our sin, we will not really see the beauty of Christ's death. That yes, our sin deserved wrath. Our sin is such a heinous thing that it cost the Son of God his life. And it is out of love from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that the Son came and sacrificed himself to reconcile us to God. Secondly, by Christ's death, God reconciles himself to man. Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 5, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. As powerful as the wrath of God was, it could not defeat his love. As powerful as the wrath of God was against our sin, his love was even more powerful. Before man does not reconcile himself to God, God reconciles man to him. It is not that we have decided to be reconciled to God. It is that God has reconciled us through his Son. And through us, Christ is preached to others to receive the reconciliation that Christ has made. The power of God is manifested in Christ's resurrection as Christ, as God and by his Spirit, makes people alive from their spiritual deadness and willing to believe the gospel. What element of this passage that I notice and I wonder that the commentators often miss is the marriage imagery. I think there is, there is gen- Genesis visions all over this place. For what was the first barrier erected? What happened first? What was the first barrier that man put up? but his fig leave clothing to protect himself 
from the image of this, the sight of God. But that fig leaf clothing also, at the same time, it was a prevention of his being in the sight of God. It also separated himself from one another. Before the sin, they were naked and unashamed, and now they could not stand in the face of God that way and could not stand in the face of one another that way. And here in this verse, do you, have you caught it? In verse 14, he has made both one. In verse 15, has of two made one new man. In verse 16, he has made both unto God in one body. That predominant idea that the two have become one, that there is one new humanity, one race of God. It is this reality that in Christ Jesus, there is, Jesus is the new Adam, the new establishment of a new covenant, the new establishment of a new people, a people that God has reserved from himself. He will write in Galatians 6, for, Christ Jesus, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. The categories of Jew and Gentile and any other categories that you might want to lift up mean nothing in the church. For the church is a new race of humanity that tr transcends all old racial, ethnic, and national divisions. The language Paul uses indicates that the method and purpose of this unity of people is their union with Christ. That the way in which this diverse group of people with different backgrounds and different ideas and different personalities are able to live together as one is because they have been united to Christ. All other attempts at unities fail because they are based on a false foundation. Man often tries to use ideas borrowed from Scripture to create a temporary unity of being, but these attempts do not last. I am amused that popular media has this idea that when the aliens show up, we will all get rid of our national boundaries and all unite and become the United Federation of Planets and uh, go out and to be one. I believe you could say that they assume rightly, but are totally wrong about the source. It won't be when the aliens come that unity reaches earth, but when Christ descends with the trump and the sound and the new Jerusalem comes and heaven touches earth, that un union will truly be made known. Do you imagine a day when the world will be one? It is a day in which we all anticipate now as we hear of wars and rumors of wars uh, throughout our world. The governments of the world cannot force unity. All the marches cannot create it. Understanding and education cannot create a generation devoid of prejudice. In fact, if we can learn anything from our present circumstances, we know the absolute reverse. Only the gospel brings unity. Only those united to Christ can experience true union with their fellow men. We often don't appreciate our union with Christ, but it is the foundation of all the benefits of redemption. It is the foundation of Christian fellowship. Now, the church, we'll have to admit, has not had the best track record for racial equality 
Prejudice and division is as old in the church as the Jew-Gentile battles of the New Testament. And this does not prove that the union with Christ is ineffectual or that the gospel is somehow weak. It shows that we are weak people, that we are sinners, that we are called to understand God's grace to all kinds of people. And we like to put this in uh, to categories that we like to uh, think ourselves enlightened about. And yet, it's often not the people who aren't in this room we have problems with. It is the people that we are in this room with. For union in the church is difficult to create and maintain. Because it requires us to die to self and to live to Christ. It requires us to remember where our union comes from. Our union comes from what Jesus has done to us. It is a biological metaphor that, that Paul uses that is accurate, that this is one body. He'll use it elsewhere. He'll talk about the body having various parts. The hand is not the eye. The foot is not the hand. These things are different. They have different uses, and yet it is an entire body. And as insane as it would be for our hand to try to rebel and say, well, because I am not to the eye, I am not of the body. So all of us are to recognize that as different as we are, as diverse as we are, we have been made one in Christ, and we are to pursue his peace. We see the wall and the ceiling and the door. So what? The question that plagues pastors that tend to get abstract in their thinking, as I often can be accused of doing. Uh, Paul makes sure that his readers understand the practical benefits of this union and this unity within the body, and it changes our view of how we preach and how we are to pray. Paul anthropomorphizes the preaching ministry of Christ in verse 17, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. This, again, far off and nigh refers to uh, those Gentiles that were far off and those Jews that were nigh. But Paul says Christ came and preached this to you. And those of you who are well-versed in your New Testament will know that Jesus Christ himself never visited the province of Asia, never visited Ephesus or any of the surrounding environs to whom this letter is written. So how did Christ come and preach to you? He came and preached to you through the work of the Apostle Paul. This verse copies uh, the wording of Isaiah 57, 19, Peace, peace to him that is far off, and to him that is near, saith the Lord, and I will hear them. Paul preached this message of peace. Paul preached peace to those, both Jew and Gentile, that all of them, all men, all women, all people, are the same at the foot of the cross. There is no exemption to the promise problem of sin but in through Jesus. In Paul's preaching this, he is, was not like those of Jeremiah's day who said, Peace, peace, when there is no peace, as you see in Jeremiah 6, 14, 8, 11. Instead, he was saying to them, There is peace with God in recognizing your sin. We preach peace within the context of the battle that rages. And often we don't need to convince people of the war that is going on 
Oftentimes, we do need to convince people of their participation in that war and where that war really comes from. We do not say that everything is good, but we point people to the only source of peace, and that is in Jesus. When we preach peace to a triggered world, can you think of a better thing to proclaim to it or to encourage it to pursue Paul concludes the section with the practical effect of fallen barriers. Look at verse 18. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. This idea of access, of the two become one again, the Jew, the Gentile are now one people to have access to the Father. You can think of this, uh, it's almost, we're thinking again in the tabernacle. The barriers of the wall, the curtains that we note of, you had three curtains you had to get through in order to get to the Holy of Holies. And all of those barriers have been broken down through Christ, and we have access and through prayer to the very Father. Without Jesus, though, no man has access to God. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. If you would be saved, you may find, you may only find salvation in Jesus, for there is no other way. Your sin created a barrier between you and God, and there was only one way that barrier could be removed. For Jesus died upon the cross to break that barrier. Jesus, who is God, made man came to reconcile you to God. He rose from the dead to proclaim the success of the sacrifice that he made and the truth of peace. By faith, you may be united to him. He can be your peace. For union with Christ means union with all of him. See, you cannot pick and choose the parts of Jesus you like and the parts you don't. You must receive all of him a Savior and Lord, union with all of Christ is what life truly is, and anything else less than Christ is death. Do you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you? I urge you to repent of your sin and to follow him. Psalm 22 begins with how good and pleasant it is. Uh, no, it is about them making that. How gl- I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. In that psalm, it describes the joy that those who are going up to Jerusalem have upon seeing Jerusalem, the end of their journey. And it says this, Jerusalem is built together as a city that is compact together. The song, the psalmist reflects upon the fact that Jerusalem as a a city has people that are stuck together, that is united. It's a place where we unite our hearts and live to the glory of our Savior. It is a place where we uh, proclaim the goodness of God. It is a place where we are forced as people who often live separate lives to get into the same room. And often to some of us, that's probably the one thing we fear the most. We are heirs of the glorious hope and future of the uh, future 
as God's people. How ought we to live? We ought to live by love. We live according to the peace that God has given to us. And we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's the way the the psalmist ends. It seems rather ironic. I think that uh, if I were to read this psalm, and I'm not advocating reader response theory, but if, you, if you, I were to read this psalm, you, you often read in the commentators that at the end of the psalm, they are so thankful to be here. They don't want Jerusalem ever to change. And they play peace for Jerusalem, peace to its walls, peace to its people. If I was reading it and thinking about Jerusalem being compacted together, I'd be like, all these people together, this is going to be nuts. Peace, we need peace here. And in some ways, we need to pray for the peace of the church in the same manner. Not that we pray that the church will never change because it's the greatest place in the world. The reality is that the church, that God's people are in continuous change as God is forming them and sanctifying them and making them more like Christ. But in some ways we pray that the church will never change in its fellowship and its unity and the ideal of what God is making it to be. And as God has compacted us all together as his people, we are to pray for its peace. Pray that our unity will continue. Pray that our strength will endure. Pray that our faith will remain secure. Pray that no sin will divide us. Pray that no heresy will corrupt us. Pray that we will experience and witness the prosperity and spiritual blessings in heavenly places that Paul has proclaimed are ours in Christ in the very first chapter of Ephesians. Pray that we will all seek the increase of God's kingdom, his church. When we come to the Lord's Supper, we also celebrate our unity and our peace. This is our reconciliation meal. This is our table fellowship. It's interesting how table fellowship is such a powerful thing in uh, the age of the Old Testament and New Testament. Is where people come together and say, this is our family. This is who we are. These are people we include in our lives. And that's what the Lord's Supper is. It, It reflects as we partake with one another that we are all part of God's people. That the people behind me are just as much part of this church as the people in front of me. That I am to be united as I unite in this fellowship with them. Does that mean that we're all going to agree about everything? Well, absolutely not. That's the beauty of table fellowship. You get around a, you get around a family dinner and you, you hope aunt so-and-so doesn't start talking about such-and-such because then you're just going to have to keep your lip buttoned. It doesn't mean that we all agree about everything, but it means we agree about the most important thing. It means that we agree that we are all sinners justly deserving God's wrath and without hope except in Christ. It means that Christ is our life. We don't reflect upon that oftentimes. We often think of 
We live in a society in which Christ is something we add to our lives instead of Christ is our life. And there's something about the Lord's table that is screaming at us as vital as food is for your existence. So vital is Christ. It reminds us that we are to live in him. As we come to this table, let us recommit ourselves to the peace of the church, to the peace that God has made with us, to the peace that the one who has broken down the walls of separation bled, died, and had his body broken for. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we recognize how often peace is fleeting in our lives, how Often we live in a world racked by war and dissension and hostility. And how often we are tempted to forget the truth of peace, to forget the source of peace, to act as if we shared the war's approach to fellowship. And yet this passage, Paul's writing, your revelation to us reminds us how central our Savior is to peace, how evident it ought to be in our dealings with one another, and how fervent it ought to be in our prayers. We ask that you would give us peace in our hearts, that you might be glorified in us, For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.